welcome to Come Follow Me with Bree, episode 96, Turning to the Lord. Hello, I'm so glad you're here. I'm going to take just a moment just to remind you what a huge difference it makes to me when you share this podcast, um, either if you're sharing it on social media or you're just sending it in a message. I try not to do this every week because I don't want to take up time and your time with reminding you this every week. And so I try and normally just dive into the podcast. But without fail, anytime I actually do mention it, my numbers go way, way up. So when you share and you tell people that you love the podcast and all that good stuff, it really does make a huge difference that I can tangibly see. And the reason I care about that is because I care about the Lord using this podcast to reach whoever it needs to reach. Today we're talking about the the official scattering of the 10 tribes and the gradual fall of Jerusalem. And then naturally when we talk about the fall and, and scattering of the 10 tribes and of the kingdom of Judah, we also then think about the gathering of Israel. And this podcast is is a kind of my labor of love um, toward the Lord to show him that I am engaged and that I care about gathering Israel. I think sometimes we think of gathering Israel as purely just missionary work and and doing temple work. But we are told that anything we're doing to help people stay on the covenant path is gathering Israel. And I like to think and hope that this podcast, that the Lord is using it to help people stay on that covenant path. So when you do things like share this podcast and anything else you're doing to help people also stay on the covenant path, you are helping gather Israel and keep it gathered. Okay, that's enough of that. So like I said, this week we're going to learn about the scattering of the 10 tribes and the gradual fall of Jerusalem. The Come Follow Me manual has a really awesome kind of between assignment section that's entitled, Jesus will say to all Israel, come home, which I really encourage you to read the whole section. It is amazing and it really helps you kind of mentally tie everything together. In this recap that they give us, it tells us that the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, lasted longer than the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel with the 10 tribes, because they were at times more righteous But ultimately, they were scattered and taken captive. And it's really interesting to read about this time of the kingdom of Judah because we intersect with the time that Lehi took his family from Jerusalem. So we've now met up with the Book of Mormon. Lehi and his family left during the reign of King Zedekiah, who was ultimately taken captive by Babylon, and his sons were killed in front of him and his eyes gouged out. And don't mean to say that so casually. That's pretty terrible. Um, but something really cool is that one of his sons that we're not told about in the Bible escaped and was led to the Americas, and his name was Mulek. And one of his descendants that we read about in the Book of Mormon was a man named Zarahemla, who was eventually discovered, he and his people, by Mosiah, who was led by the Lord to find these people. When the people, if you remember, of Zarahemla, who was a descendant of Mulek, son of King Zedekiah, were discovered by the Nephites. They were so excited because the Nephites had the plates of brass that had a history of the Jews and the gospel. And 
I want you to think about really quickly, why did the, the descendants of Mulek that escaped also to the Americas, why did they have the plates of brass and the people of, of Mulek did not? And here we've got a righteous prophet, Lehi, who was given a very specific mission for his sons to complete to go get the plates of brass. And with Mulek, I guess we don't know a ton about him, but it sounds like he pro he was part of a, a pretty wicked family. And so it's likely that they were not living a life that the Lord considered worthy of, of providing the plates of brass. However, eventually they were regathered to the Nephites. And clearly at the point when when Mosiah found these people in Zarahemla, they were ready to receive the gospel because they were so excited to understand their history, the history of the Jews, and to get the plates of brass. Isn't it so cool to see how it's all connected? The Nephites and the descendants of Mulek left Jerusalem sort of around the same time, and they ended up being reconnected and becoming one people again, both descendants of the kingdom of Judah then united under King Mosiah hundreds of years later. So in learning that, we are learning about the scattering of Israel. Israel, again, was originally just in that one area of Israel. Then they split into two kingdoms, and then they were scattered and sold into captivity and all that stuff. And part of all that stuff is they were scattered across the world, including the people that we read about in the Book of Mormon. That section in the Come Follow Me manual that I talked about earlier says, Understanding the scattering of Israel will help you understand the Book of Mormon better too, because the Book of Mormon is a record of a branch scattered Israel. This record begins with Lehi's family fleeing Jerusalem about 600 BC, just before the Babylonians attacked. Lehi was one of those prophets who prophesied about the scattering of Israel, and his family helped fulfill that prophecy, taking their branch of the house of Israel and planting it on the other side of the world in the Americas. The scattering of Israel, however, is only half the story. The Lord doesn't forget his people, nor does he fully forsake them. The many prophecies that Israel would be scattered were accompanied by many promises that God would one day gather them. That day is today our day. The gathering has already begun. In 1836, thousands of years after Moses gathered the children of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, Moses appeared in the Kirtland Temple to commit Joseph Smith the keys of the gathering of Israel from the four parts of the earth. Now under the direction of those who hold those keys, the tribes of Israel are being gathered from every nation where the Lord's servants are able to go. President Russell M. Nelson has called the gathering the most important thing taking place on the earth today. Nothing else compares in magnitude, nothing else compares in importance, nothing else compares in majesty, and if you choose to, if you want to, you can be a big part of it. How do you do it? What does it mean to gather Israel? Does it mean restoring the twelve tribes back to the land they once inhabited? Actually, it means something greater, much more eternal. As President Nelson explained, when we speak of the gathering, we are simply saying this fundamental truth. Every one of our Heavenly Father's children on both sides of the veil deserves to hear the message of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Anytime you do anything that helps anyone on the other side of the veil, take a step forward in making covenants with God and receiving their essential baptismal and temple ordinances, you are helping gather Israel. It is as simple as that. So with that in mind, let's read about what happened. Why were they scattered in the first place? Our chapters this week are a lot about the descent into further wickedness and a couple of righteous kings who tried their best to pull the people out of it. And the king that I want to focus on is King Josiah. King Josiah was anointed king when he was eight years old, and he did his best to obey the commandments of the Lord, even though 
he certainly had very wicked predecessors in his father and grandfather, which is really impressive. He worked to repair the temple, and in doing that, he found scriptures that had long been lost. And with that, he consulted with a prophetess named Huldah, <laughs> Huldah, who told him that Judah was doomed to be destroyed. And yet he was also promised that because his heart was tender and because he humbled himself before the Lord and the Lord said that he had seen him weep before the Lord, that he would eventually get to rest in peace before Judah was destroyed. After being given this promise, he wasn't ready to give up on the people, and he went to the temple and had the people gather, and he read them the words of the Book of the Covenant. It says in Second Kings chapter 23 that he and the people, quote, made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart and their soul to perform the word of this covenant that were written in this book. He then destroys all of the idols, the groves, the temples, the false gods, their altars, kills all of the priests, and it, and it goes on for a couple of pages about everything he did to destroy the worship of Baal and the occult and divination, etc. And then he reinstituted the Passover, which he had read about in that lost book that he had found in the temple. In chapter 23, verse 22, it says, Surely there was not holden such a Passover from the days of the judges that judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Judah. So he really, he found this book. He really committed to the law of Moses. In verse 25 of chapter 23, it says, And like unto him there was no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, neither after him arose there any like him. Doesn't he sound amazing? Think of what a transformation that was. He was raised by very wicked people and in a culture that was very wicked and worshipped other gods. And yet he mustered up the motivation to fully turn toward the Lord with all his might, mind, and strength. But despite all of Josiah's efforts, his son, after he died, was appointed to be the next king, and his son was wicked, and the people continued to descend into deeper betrayal of the Lord. But the promise that the Lord gave Josiah was fulfilled, that he would die before seeing the fall of his people. He would die in peace. And I wonder, as Josiah put forth all this effort for a people that he knew was going to ultimately fall, what was his motivation? I would imagine that that even though he knew that the people as a whole would fall, that there would be some that would come to the Lord, some that would be righteous. And ultimately, his motivation was a love for his people. But far deeper than that, Josiah turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might. And why? Because he loved the Lord. A true, all-consuming love for the Lord creates a holiness in people. Carol F. McConkie said, I see the beauty of holiness in sisters and brothers whose hearts are centered on all that is good, who want to become more like the Savior. They offer their whole soul, heart, might, and mind, and strength to the Lord in the way that they live every day. Holiness is in the striving and the struggle to keep the commandments and to honor the covenants we have made with God. Holiness is making the choices that will keep the Holy Ghost as our guide. Holiness is setting aside our natural tendencies and becoming a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord. Every moment of our lives must be holiness to the Lord. Don't you love that? Holiness is the striving and the struggle to keep the commandments. Josiah turned 
to the Lord with all his heart and soul and might. It didn't say that he was perfect. His effort was not perfect. Nobody's has been and ever will be, aside, of course, from Jesus Christ. He turned to the Lord with all his heart and all his soul and all his might. And we can do the same, knowing that our effort won't be perfect and that the struggle and striving to keep the commandments is what we're supposed to be doing. Joseph B. Worthlin said this about loving the Lord, which is what Josiah spent his entire reign doing, loving the Lord, doing his best. He says, On one occasion, the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus by asking him a seemingly impossible question. Master, they asked, which is the great commandment in the law? The Pharisees had debated this question extensively and had identified more than 600 commandments. If prioritizing them was such a difficult task for scholars, certainly they thought the question would be impossible for this son of a carpenter from Galilee. But when the Pharisees heard his answer, they must have been troubled, for it pointed to their great weakness. He replied, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Since that day, this inspired pronouncement has been repeated through many generations. Now for us, the measure of our love is the measure of the greatness of our souls. The scriptures tell us that if any man love God, the same is known of him. What a wonderful promise to be known of him. It makes the spirit soar to think that the creator of heaven and earth could know us and love us with a pure eternal love. Love is the beginning, the middle, and the end of the pathway of discipleship. It comforts, counsels, cures, and consoles. It leads us through valleys of darkness and through the veil of death. In the end, love leads us to the glory and grandeur of eternal life. Do you love the Lord? Spend time with Him. Meditate on His words. Take His yoke upon you. Seek to understand and obey, because this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. When we love the Lord, obedience ceases to be a burden. Obedience becomes a delight. When we love the Lord, we seek less for things that benefit us and turn our hearts toward things that will bless and uplift others. As our love for the Lord deepens, our minds and hearts become purified. We experience a mighty change in our hearts, that we have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. At that final day, the Savior will not ask about the nature of our callings. He will not inquire about our material possessions or fame. He will ask if we ministered to the sick, gave food and drink to the hungry, visited those in prison, or gave succor to the weak. When we reach out to assist the least of Heavenly Father's children, we do it unto Him. That is the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the primary thing that stands out as we read about King Josiah? What guided all of his actions? What will the Lord say about Josiah at the final judgment? Josiah loved the Lord with all his might, mind, and strength. Elder Kochi Ayagi said, Put God first, regardless of the trials you face. Love God, have faith in Christ, and entrust yourself to him in all things. Moroni makes the following promise to such people, And if ye shall deny yourselves, of all ungodliness, and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then is his grace sufficient for you, that by his grace ye may be perfect in Christ. Isn't it beautiful that we are subject to an omniscient, all-powerful God 
whose first and primary commandment centralizes around something as transcendent and joyful and extraordinary as love, that by obeying that commandment, everything else falls into place. He created this whole plan for us, this whole story that we're reading about of the human family, because he loves us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Adam fell that men might be and men are that they might have joy. That summarizes it all. He loves us. And if we love him with our might, mind, and strength, then his grace is sufficient. What a gift. The Lord will know King Josiah when he approaches him at the judgment seat. He will say about Josiah, Josiah loved the Lord. Will the Lord say the same about you? What does your story show the Lord? Can you say that your life, like Josiah, reflects primarily your love for the Lord? Is there anything in your life that is overshadowing that most important thing? I know we read this a couple of weeks ago, but it feels appropriate again. Let's end with the final words in the Book of Mormon from Captain Moroni, pleading with us to embrace the perfection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Moroni, who knew, not because of pride or arrogance or self-righteousness, but who knew because of his intimate relationship with the Savior and belief in the Savior and his plan, that he would arrive at the judgment seat with pleasure and satisfaction and joy. And that that perfect confidence in God's abilities was possible for us too. And as I read it, I want you also to notice that Josiah could have written the same thing. He was promised by the Lord that he would die in peace after a life full of service to the Lord, full of love toward the Lord. Josiah died in peace, knowing the same things that Moroni knew and the same things that we can know as we develop an intimate relationship where our love for the Lord is prioritized over all things. Moroni chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. Moroni says, Yea, come unto Christ, and be perfected in him, and deny yourselves of all ungodliness. And if ye shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness, and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then is his grace sufficient for you, that by his grace ye may be perfect in Christ. And if by the grace of God ye are perfect in Christ, ye can in no wise deny the power of God. And again, if by the grace of God ye are perfect in Christ and deny not his power, then ye are sanctified in Christ by the grace of God, through the shedding of the blood of Christ, which is in the covenant of the Father unto the remission of your sins, that ye become holy without spot. Now I bid unto all farewell. I soon go to rest in the paradise of God, until my spirit and body shall again reunite and I am brought forth triumphant through the air to meet you before the pleasing bar of the great Jehovah, the eternal judge of both quick and dead. Amen. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.